0: Hi, this is Jen White. Both Making Oprah and Making Obama were made possible by the support of WBEZ listeners. And in order to do more things like this, we need your support. So chip in what you can. $35, $50, even $10 helps. Because when your support is combined with the donations of hundreds of other listeners, there's power in those numbers. To donate now, just click the link in the episode description or go to wbez.org slash making. That's wbez.org slash making. And thanks.
1: Brock's a fierce competitor. Anybody who's ever played basketball with him knows that.
2: Look, everybody who runs for office has an ego. You have to, or you wouldn't put up with the craziness that's involved. Brock wants
3: to win, and he will beat you, and he will grind it out. But if you ask him, you have a strong ego. He probably said, what do you think? What's it look like?
0: Tell me about the night of the primaries. What was the atmosphere like? (laughs) That was amazing. Jim Cawley helped head up Barack Obama's campaign for the U.S. Senate in 2004. For the majority of that race, Obama was not the favorite. Now, I don't think I'm spoiling anything here, but he did win. And on the night of the Democratic
4: primary victory, Colley and the team paused and took it all in. When you're in something, you don't know when it's big. But I, I remember sitting to the back of the room and I was like, wow, this is pretty big. I want to talk a little bit about optics.
0: Who did he need to be seen with, and who did you try to keep him away
4: from? Hmm. We did not want the old guard, for lack of a better term, on the stage with Brock. And historically, you got to have the speaker, and you got to have, you know, every goober that's got elected dog catcher on the stage, because they want their three seconds of fame. I do remember that there were certain people in the old guard, and I, I don't care to say it, but I mean, there was... We, and I say I and the rest of the message team, did not want uh, Jesse and the family, up. you know. When you say Jesse, you mean? Jesse Jackson, who can jump on a stage from about 40 yards, best I can tell.
0: The night of the U.S. Senate primary victory was really the first time that the Obamas were introduced to the world. And for that moment, the campaign team had a specific image that they wanted to present.
4: Axrod had a visual that he was trying to paint with the cameras. The whole goal was to present him to the nation, not just Illinois, but the picture they were wanting to paint was this beautiful family on their way to the top.
0: From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jen White, and this is Making Obama. Last time, Obama lost his cool. And we had a little pushing and shoving. Men acting like kids. Obama chose a side.
5: He had opposed the war, which was a prescient decision on his part.
0: What I do oppose is a dumb war. And he got some powerful people to back him.
6: Those ladies can open
7: doors to a lot of people.
8: Overall, you had uh, I think a strong enough base of
7: support that I was credible. It was happening so fast, it was almost impossible to keep up with what was going on.
0: Now, in this final episode, Obama fights for a national office.
7: Come on, really?
1: Barack Obama? Against all that money and against all that name ID? You don't have a chance.
0: The plan comes together. Oh man, it was a blessed sport. But we loved it. And Obama finally steps onto the big stage.
9: The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him, too.
8: It's interesting. That speech came fairly easily to me.
9: To go from anonymity
10: to not being able to walk down the street without being recognized is kind of a shock to the system. Part 6.
0: Yes, we can.
11: He said, I went and opened up an office... And I turned on the phones and electricity, and I signed a lease.
0: By early 2003, Barack Obama's run for the U.S. Senate was officially underway, and he needed some cash to tide the campaign over. He met with Hermine Hartman, the founder of Indigo, a magazine focused on African-American issues based in Chicago.
11: And he says, I want you to call Oprah. And I said, Barack, I don't know Oprah like that. I can't call her and ask her for money. He was like, yes, you can. She'll know you. He was very insistent. So I said, all right, I'm going to call Oprah. Hartman
0: called Harpo Studios. She got through to one of Oprah Winfrey's assistants
11: and made her pitch. He's a young politician, and he's going places, and he's just a wonderful man and someone that Oprah should definitely know. And she said, what does he do? And I said, oh, he's a state senator. And she says, do you truly expect for Oprah to meet with a lowly senator? Those were her words. And it was like, no,
0: no, and no. Thankfully, Hartman had a backup. She called Al Johnson, a wealthy African-American car dealer in Chicago. Obama had lunch with Johnson in the hopes of securing a loan. Al called and said,
11: I like your friend. And I was like, oh, thank God. I said, you give him the money? (laughs) He says, yeah. He says, this better work for me. And I said, I know. I said, it's going to work. So then Barack called me and he says, thank you. I got it. And we're going to be okay."
0: Besides Obama, six other Democrats announced that they were running for the Senate seat. And in the beginning, Obama's chances of winning were not good.
8: And the question then just became, would I be able to raise enough money uh, in a crowded field uh, that included uh, one very wealthy individual who could spend as much as he wanted, and Dan Hines, uh, who was a really fine man, and could I raise enough money to be known
7: in a crowded field like that?
0: Those two candidates that Obama is talking about are Blair Hall and Dan Hines.
7: I was in the A position in that primary. I mean, I had a lot of organizational support.
0: Dan Hines comes from an established Chicago political family. And at the time, he was in his second term as state comptroller. Illinois' chief fiscal officer.
7: I mean, I felt pretty good.
0: What issues were you focused on in your campaign?
7: Well, you know, I was trying to be focused on economic issues. Unfortunately, the election was somewhat hijacked by the Iraq War, and the the press wanted a yes or no answer.
1: Mr. Hines, do you think that the invasion of Iraq was justified?
7: Unfortunately, at the time, my gut feeling was that the president says we need to do this and that uh, there's weapons of mass destruction I'm going to believe him, and that's the way I suppose I would vote. I supported the removal of Saddam Hussein. I think the world is a safer place as a result. To Brock's credit, you know, his gut was that it was a bad decision.
9: I was the only candidate who spoke out publicly against this war.
0: Obama became the progressive choice, but there was one other big wild card in the race.
7: The thing is, like, throughout the primary, though, the concern in the back of my head was actually not Barack Obama, it was Blair Hull. Uh,
9: I'm not a professional politician. Uh, I've lived the American dream.
0: Blair Hall was a self-made businessman and a political newbie. Some estimates put his personal wealth at over half a billion dollars.
7: He spent $30 million in that primary and was up on TV very, very early.
5: Blair Hull, a detailed plan to create jobs and make health care affordable. Hull's plan...
7: And his numbers were moving, and he was going after all of my votes.
0: With those two strong candidates in the race, the people in Obama's campaign knew a win was a long shot. What the hell am I doing here? Political consultant Pete Gian Greco. And frankly, that was the conventional wisdom of, yeah, he's
1: talented, but come on, really? Barack Obama, you know, against all that money and against, you know, Hines and all that name ID and all those endorsements, you don't have a chance.
0: To make matters worse, Obama's about to lose a key member of his team.
12: I realized that I had been all Obama all the time.
0: Dan Showman was Obama's campaign manager for the U.S. Senate race. The two men had been working together for over six years, but he was starting to feel
12: overwhelmed. When my mom died in 2003, which was right after he announced for U.S. Senate, that was when I woke up and said, you know, I'm too into this. I need to take a step back. And he said, you can't, you can't quit. And I said, I need to take a step back.
0: Showman stayed with the campaign, but took a step back. Now Obama needed a new campaign manager, and he found a replacement with a lot of experience.
4: Around the campaigns, it's when you get the starfuckers, you know, that just want to be there. They want to be off the elbow of the candidate, and they want to be in the room when George Clooney's there and all those people. And there's too many of them around politics. If that's what they wanted, they should have found somebody else, and they didn't. So, Jim Cawley is a political consultant from Kentucky. In
0: 2003, he was asked to become Obama's new campaign manager. By then, Jim had worked on campaigns in over 25 states. He'd won some big races, and he'd seen a lot. And Jim was not impressed by Obama's resume.
4: I mean, his only experience was a losing congressional race. Pretty bad, actually. I mean, what did he get? Beat 2-1, to 60-30 or something like that
0: pretty bad. So ultimately, why did you decide to sign on with the campaign?
4: Because he's a likable guy. But let's be honest, there was no African Americans in the U.S. Senate, and electing African Americans in the U.S. Senate is a hell of a resume builder.
0: What's your specialty when it comes to campaigning? What do they call you in to do?
4: Uh, I I run things. The train's got to run, the money's got to get raised, and you got to pay for the party. That's typically what I do. You know, you can be the greatest progressive. You can be the greatest fit for everything. But legitimacy comes with cash on hand. Back then, we were pretty broke. Cauley thought Obama's early U.S. Senate
0: campaign operation was pretty amateurish. And that was not cutting it. So they tightened things up. And Cauley put his foot down
4: about the finances. I was kind of amazed that everybody had a credit card. You know, everybody would go out and buy, you know, we need office supplies. Oh, they go spend $800. I was like, no, we can't do that. Did everybody keep their credit cards? No. Uh, Actually, only one that had one was Brock and me. Brock and myself. Well, Eastern Kentucky Education came out.
0: Obama was thinking about money, too, and a promise he made to Michelle just a couple of years earlier. He did not want a repeat of the congressional race where the campaign left his family in debt.
4: His big thing to me was Jim... If I lose this, look, dude, don't spin me in a hole. I thought if he had the money, he would win. My big fear was he would be underfunded. It wasn't him. I mean, yeah, I've met a lot of great candidates. you got to find the ones that can sit in a room and ask for money eight hours a day and be successful.
0: In the campaign business, sitting in a room and asking for money eight hours a day is something called call time. Pete Greco.
1: Call time is the worst thing about running for office. It's the main reason why most really good people don't run for office is that it's awful. They usually lock you in a room for 20 or 25 hours a week.
0: In that room is a table, a list of everyone you know, and a telephone. The goal? Get the people on that list to give you money.
1: Once you get through all the people you know, you're looking at a piece of paper, and you may know about this person, but you don't know them. They're not on your Christmas card list. So it was something that you just had to be disciplined and and grind out. Jim Cawley
0: was in charge of enforcing that discipline on Obama. He, he grew into it. Um, you kind of gave a little smile there, though. <laughs> well, he, he,
4: nobody likes groveling, and Barack had his moments. I mean, that you'd have to really kind of get on him to to keep on to the work at hand. He'd want to think, big think, and I'd be like, no, you got to hit 14 calls an hour.
1: When he sat and did his call time, it was this drab, white crappy office that we had on South Michigan, and there was nothing in the room that I recall except the photo of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston after he knocked him out. And that was Barack to the T. He was going to take on the old guard, and he was going to beat him because he was faster, smarter, better. You know, Barack wants to win,
0: and he will beat you, and he will grind it up. Beyond call time, Obama had to do some campaigning,
10: He would go anywhere and everywhere to try to generate support. Obama's close friend and advisor, Valerie Jarrett. He was hungry and he knew he was the underdog and that the underdog had to really work hard. I remember going to a fundraiser where only six people showed up and he gave them the full pitch for why they should support him. Those six people ultimately turned into thousands. And since it was a statewide office,
0: Obama did plenty of campaigning south of Chicago.
5: Obama had been at a VFW hall.
0: Obama's media strategist, David Axelrod.
5: And I said to Barack, I said, I heard you had a great day down there. Because this place was closer to Little Rock than Chicago. And he said, yeah, why are you so surprised? And I said, well, I don't know, a black guy named Barack Obama in deep southern Illinois. It just seemed like it could be challenging. He said, no, you don't get it. He said, these people are just like my grandparents from Kansas. And I realized this guy's comfortable in any room in which he goes.
0: Former Illinois Senate President Emil Jones joined Obama on the campaign trail. He remembers one particular event in what he calls a sundown town.
13: A sundown town is a town that if you're black, you better be out of town by sundown. We were in one of those sundown towns one Sunday, a big fish fry on a farm, you know, everything. And I'm sitting across the table having eaten some fish, and this little elderly white lady, she was talking. And she said something that was so profound. She said, I'm 84 years old. She said, I certainly hope I live long enough. She said, this young man is going to be president one day, and I want to be around to vote for him. And it was was so startling to me. I didn't tell Brock that, because I didn't want his head to get big.
9: You know, I've been traveling across the state for the last year. Obama at a Senate debate in October 2003. People don't feel like they've got a voice in Congress. People don't believe that working families have a seat at the table. I'm running for the United States Senate because I want to provide those families a voice.
0: Then, in early 2004, a scandal hit the Senate race.
12: My version of the story is the only real version of the story, because I was actually <laughs> there. Everybody else was not there. Dan Showman. I was in the car with Obama, and my friend was working with Blair Hull's ex-wife. I knew all the inside information. So we knew this was about to hit about his divorce case and the allegations that he hit his ex-wife.
0: A little over two weeks before the primary election, a bombshell hit the campaign of U.S. Senate candidate and multimillionaire Blair Hall. His sealed divorce records were made public, and in those documents were allegations of abuse and that Hall said things like this.
12: I'll kill you, you effing C-dash-dash-T, I told Obama he was in the car with me. His immediate reaction was, oh my God, Blair is going to drop out. This is going to be bad for me.
0: <laughs> Hall had been taking the lead in the polls, and there was some concern in the Obama campaign that Hall's voters would shift over to the other favorite, Dan Hines.
7: It was happening so fast, it was almost impossible to keep up with the numbers of what was going on. It also just you know, completely consumed the media's attention.
2: Mr.
0: Hall, for the record, are those charges true or false? In the last televised debate, Blair Hall tried to defend himself. Uh, You'll see that um, my former wife kicked me in the leg and
8: I hit her shin to try to get her not to continue to kick me. Did you threaten to kill her? You know, I don't remember exactly what I did six years ago.
7: When the dust settled, My funds were depleted. We made the miscalculation of spending money to try to keep up with Blair Hall early. Senate
0: candidate Dan Hines.
7: Barack saved all his money. And then when Blair Hall imploded, Barack had a full arsenal of uh, TV money.
0: The timing couldn't have been better. While Blair Hall's campaign was collapsing, Obama's campaign manager, Jim Cauley, finally started spending money on TV ads. And for the first ad, media strategist David Axelrod wrote the script, trying to tie Obama's story with the national mood.
5: The atmosphere in Washington was quite rancid, and there was this sense of gridlock already settling in, this sense of implacable forces battling each other. And here was a guy who had like overcome enormous obstacles personally. And so we wanted to tie his biography to, to that larger theme that we can actually change the nature of politics.
0: They filmed the first TV ad at the home of a supporter, and Michelle Obama came to watch. At the end of the ad copy was a new slogan for Obama
5: he finished the first take and he got to yes we can and he said yes we can, yes, we can. he said is that too corny and I'm like my heart is sinking because I'm, I was so invested in that it was optimistic and it was not about him it was about what we could do together Then he turned to Michelle and he said Mish what do you think I remember she had her chin in her hand and she just sort of slowly shook her head and said not corny
9: they said an African-American had never led the Harvard Law Review until I changed that. In the State Senate, they said we couldn't force insurance companies to cover routine mammograms. But we did. They said we couldn't find the money to cover uninsured children, or give tax relief to the working poor, or pass new laws to stop wrongful executions. But I have. Now they say we can't change Washington? I'm Barack Obama. I'm running for the United States Senate, and I approve this message
4: to say, yes, we can. We had three spots. 90 seconds of ads introduced him to this state. Campaign manager Jim Colley. There was a moment in the primary that Barack came in there, and he's like, wow, so they're noticing me on the street. They're noticing me in the grocery. Yeah, you're on TV. He goes, I've been running around the state like a crazy man for a year and a half, and nobody knows who I was. And I go on TV, and people know me, and I was like,
5: that's pretty much how it works. Obama really captured the gestalt of the state at the time. I mean, people really did want a unifying figure. The Chicago Tribune endorsed Barack Obama yesterday.
7: In In those
0: last weeks of the primary, Obama secured some major endorsements.
7: Last Friday, the Sun-Times also gave its support to Barack Obama.
5: And he swept those endorsements, and they were effusive. For three weeks, he went from who to the man.
4: And it was... A rocket ride, like, I didn't know that those things existed.
0: Besides the endorsements and a big bump in name recognition, in private, Obama still had some dissenters, namely a couple of colleagues that he historically hadn't gotten along with in
13: Springfield. Listen, Barack Obama said to me, you got two members of your caucus not supporting me. I said, I'll talk to them. And and who were those two members? That was Donnie Trotter and uh, Ricky Hendon. Illinois
0: Senate President Emil Jones.
13: So I talked to him, and I explained to them, this issue is bigger than you and I. It's bigger than Brock. I said, I cannot have on my watch you all not supporting him for the U.S. Senate. Then they both got enthusiastically involved in the campaign. <laughs> Oh, yeah.
0: Did you support his U.S. Senate race? Of course.
13: I got up and gave a great endorsement of Barack. It it confused the hell out of Barack. Because he asked me, he said, well, how'd you get Ricky? I said, I made my offer. And I said, you don't want to (laughs) know.
0: That's very godfather of you. (laughs) (laughs) But That's what went down. Unlike the 2000 congressional race against Bobby Rush, this time, Obama had the backing of a political heavyweight in Emil Jones, and he had a well-funded and disciplined campaign operation. During Obama's time running for office in Chicago, he had learned a lot of lessons. In Obama's first-ever campaign in 1996, he challenged the petitions of State Senator Alice Palmer, and that led to Palmer getting kicked off the ballot. Well, seven years later, Obama again had the opportunity to challenge the petitions of an opponent. Joyce Washington was an African American woman also running for the U.S. Senate. And her petitions were awful. Consultant Pete Gian Greco.
1: I mean, they were just classic Chicago roundtable.
3: It was bogus, it was, the day is long. Field coordinator Al Kendall. The razors were sharp, and we were ready to take this lady out. And there Barack was, he called me, Kendall, what should I do? I said, look, Barack, take the moment, think about it. Whatever your gut tells you, that's the way we're going. He walked around the block, took a smoke, and came back and said, no, he's not going to challenge her.
4: Campaign manager Jim Colley. I'm pretty sure the consensus was maybe 60-40 among the team to file the challenge. And Barack overrode us and said, you know what? I'm not going to do this again. If I'm going to win, I'm going to win.
5: I was sitting in a bar at the Pfister Hotel in uh, Milwaukee.
0: Obama's media strategist, David Axelrod.
5: And I was talking to Dan Baltz, the very fine political reporter for the Washington Post. And I said, I'm working for a guy in Illinois right now who's running for the Senate named Barack Obama. He said, Barack Obama? What kind of name is that? I've never heard of Barack Obama. And I said, Well, he's going to win. And I said, And you're going to hear a lot from him. He's going to be a force in national politics.
4: How do people hang out after hours? Where where was, like,
0: the the getaway spot?
4: There was a bar over here called Garrett Ripley's, and that was, for lack of a better term, the campaign bar. Obama's Senate campaign manager, Jim Colley. I've been around a lot of races. The ones that are successful tend to have that fun, we're-changing-the-world vibe. Now, I'm jaded, and I'm the old crotchety dude, but then you had the interns that worked for free. But you know what? You buy them some beer and give them a cheeseburger and treat them like family around a campaign, those people will walk through a wall for you. And when you're winning, it's fun, let's be honest. And the experiences you're going to have in life, winning a U.S. Senate race with somebody you believe in, it has to go down on your list of great moments in your life.
0: Walk us through those final hectic moments of the U.S. Senate
3: campaign. Oh, man, it was a blood sport, but we loved it.
0: Veteran Chicago political operative Al Kendall helped coordinate the south side of Chicago for Obama's Senate primary.
3: I mean, I thought it was going to be like my last campaign because I had just come off of a, uh, like a heart attack and they had told me that I couldn't do politics anymore. But here it was. I said, Jesus, how did I get to this point? Get ready to elect the black U.S. senator? Like, I just got to do this race.
0: Just days before the primary election, Obama held a campaign rally at Liberty Baptist Church on the South Side with a crowd of over a thousand people.
9: But there's another headline out there somewhere that says Obama wins.
0: On primary day on the South Side, Al Kindle and his team had one goal: get out the
3: vote. Because by this point we knew. That if we got the vote out, based on our surveys, out of every 10 voters, nine of them would come to Barack. The key was to get them out. Mm. But we had done this before with Harold.
0: Obama's main competition for the U.S. Senate primary, Dan Hines.
7: You know, normally... The fun of election night is watching the numbers come in and different parts of the state reporting and up and down, and it lasts several hours. I mean, the election was over in like 10 minutes.
5: Our target was to get 38% of the vote. We thought that would be enough to win.
7: David Axelrod.
5: And it was just overwhelming. We were so incredulous when the numbers started coming in that we thought they had to be wrong because they were so positive.
0: Obama won the Democratic Senate primary with 53% of the vote. He beat Dan Hines by an over 2-to-1 margin.
10: In Illinois, Barack Obama has won the Democratic primary. He was Senate. able to
6: energize his urban African-American base to a level surpassed in recent memory only by the campaigns of late Chicago Mayor Harold Washington in the
9: 1980s. And Obama broadened his support to include white progressive Democrats in Chicago,
6: with suburbs of downstate.
9: I think it's fair to say that the conventional wisdom was we could not win. There was no way that a skinny guy from the south side with a funny name like Barack Obama could ever win
5: a statewide race. I said to him, Harold, smiling down on us tonight.
9: And Democrats from all across Illinois, suburb, city, downstate, upstate, black, white.
0: What was that loss like for you?
7: I took it pretty hard. I took it pretty hard, yeah.
0: Dan Hines.
7: I felt kind of humiliated, quite honestly, um, to have been beaten that badly.
0: Now, Hines readily admits that Obama was a savvy politician and a skilled orator. That would become clear during a famous speech that Obama would give just a few months before the general election. We'll get to that in a bit. But in Obama's Senate race, Dan Hines says that there was more at play than just talent.
7: I've spoken glowingly of Barack, right? But we all have to admit, luck had a little bit to do with it, too, right? I mean, this guy has had great fortune.
0: What exactly happened
4: with Jack Ryan? Oh, my. I mean, the divorce file came out. Campaign manager Jim Cawley. No clue that that was coming.
0: In the general election, Obama was to face Republican Jack Ryan, He was handsome, wealthy, and touted as the Republican version of Jack Kennedy. But in a remarkably similar scandal to that of Blair Hall, Jack Ryan's divorce records were unsealed. And in the documents were salacious details about Ryan pressuring his wife to perform sex acts in front of strangers in sex clubs. Here's Jack Ryan on WBEZ soon after his divorce records went public.
6: There's a dispute about exactly the situation, but... Um, going to I, sex clubs Having, having uh, marital relations with your spouse I think is not something
7: that is beyond the pale Now some leaders in the state Have called on you to withdraw from this race Will you?
6: No, I'm in this race until
4: we win in November
0: Three days after this interview Jack Ryan withdrew
4: Barack's like What is going wrong with the world today? And I remember he was incredulous I don't know. It just all amazed me. Amazed me. That's some of the things that you're like, yeah, wow, well, that happened today.
0: Without a nominee, the Republican Party was scrambling to find a candidate to run against Obama. There briefly was some talk about nominating Chicago Bears coach Mike Ditka, but the Republicans eventually landed on an activist from Maryland named Alan Keyes. Keyes is African American, extremely conservative and had never lived in Illinois. I mean, what kind of logic's that? They got a black guy, we'll get a black guy? Not even from the state. What did you make of that
4: decision? I thought it was asinine.
0: Here's Alan Keyes during a debate in October 2004. He's answering a question about how race
6: factored into the Senate campaign. Did you know that something like 13 million black babies have been killed since Roe v.ersus Wade as a result of this Holocaust of abortion? Did you know that the black population and today
9: is... It's that, like that kind of uh, overblown rhetoric that uh, has uh, left uh, Illinois not particularly uh, pleased with his campaign.
0: Obama would end up easily beating Keyes, taking 70 percent of the statewide vote.
7: That whole general election was taken away from him. Dan Hines. You know, he has Blair Hall blow up, and then he has Jack Ryan, who would have been a tough candidate, blow up. And then he gets this... Guy from Maryland come in, and I mean, it was he, he, he had it he had it uh, pretty good there.
0: This is a pretty common refrain about Obama's U.S. Senate campaign, especially about the general election, that there were a series of events, scandals, and bad candidates that made it all pretty easy for Obama. He was lucky.
6: You know, I, I, I hear this all the time, and uh, I have a thesis that I'm pretty sure is correct. Close friend of Barack Obama, Marty Nesbitt. People took extraordinary risks because they knew it was going to be hard to beat him. The Republicans replaced their candidate because he was getting smoked. They picked Alan Keyes because it was an act of desperation. You know, John McCain's pick of Sarah Palin was a Hail Mary. People always want to translate this into luck. He was also a brilliant politician. When Kobe Bryant hits the fall-away three at the buzzer and beats you, you know, I would say, oh, that was lucky. But you know, it's Kobe Bryant. Now, on the
0: way to Obama's Senate victory, something massive happened at the Democratic National Convention. It was on that stage that Obama finally became a national figure. As it turns out, the seeds for that breakthrough were planted months earlier on the night of Obama's primary victory.
9: The conventional wisdom was we could not win. Marty Nesbitt was
0: with Obama.
6: And then I said, you know, man, just think about this and the way you won this primary in such dramatic fashion. If I were John Kerry, I'd ask you to speak at the convention, right? And he, and he just looked at me and said, yeah, that'd probably be a good idea. Yes, we
0: can! 2004 was also a presidential election year. At the Democratic National Convention in Boston that summer, John Kerry would accept his party's nomination for president of the United States. Now, being a speaker at the DNC is a big deal. And when Obama won his Senate primary, the lineup hadn't yet been confirmed. How did you help Obama get that speech at the DNC? David Axelrod.
5: Listen, um, we waged a aggressive Kind of behind the scenes effort. There's a lot of
4: people working on that.
5: Jim Colley. Pete had a very
4: good relationship with the convention manager. I don't know if he mentioned that. I had you know an old boss, Jack
1: Corrigan, who was running the convention for John Kerry.
0: Pete Gian Greco.
1: And I put a call into Jack and said, "Gee, you know, Jack, I'm you know I'm working for this guy, Barack Obama." He's like, "Oh, I know him." I said, "Well, you know, we'd really like to see if we could get a speaking slot at the convention," and he said, "Oh." Yeah, I don't think that's going to be a problem. Well, any chance for prime time? He said, I don't think you need to lobby much.
5: It was an obvious thing because he was young. He was new. He was fresh. He was African-American. And in fact, when the call finally came from the uh, campaign manager for John Kerry, we were traveling around downstate. I think it took several calls because of the cell service was so inadequate down there. But she finally called, made the ask. And Obama hung up and said immediately, I know what I want to say. And I said, well, what do you want to say? And he said, well, I want to tell my story as part of the larger American story.
8: It's interesting, that speech came fairly easily to me. I mean, I remember writing that first draft, sitting in the place where I stayed down in Springfield, then the Renaissance Hotel,
5: uh, watching basketball and writing it out on my yellow pad. I was on a short vacation with my wife overseas, and I get a fax, like at 1 or 2 in the morning, which is generally when he does his best work. I'm reading the first page. The second page, I'm handing them to my wife, Susan. And by the third page, we both realized, well, this could be one of the great convention speeches of all time.
0: But there was a problem. The first draft was far too long.
8: First of all, it had to go through a bunch of versions, because although the basic speech was there, uh, even in the first draft, initially I think they were going to give me something like eight minutes. <laughs> and they said, well, that's not going to work. This was a big point of contention between us and the carry people. But I think my first draft was you know, 30,
4: <laughs> right? So, a little editing. Yeah. So we had to do some serious cutting. What are we getting rid of? What are we getting rid of? What are we getting rid of? I think he pared it down to 19 minutes on the first then they came back and said no. And then there was this, I'm not taking anything out moment.
8: So then they said 12, and we finally settled on 18. And you know, I struggled with that because I there were a lot of good lines in there that got, <laughs> got put on the chopping block. In the end, it, it, uh, it turned into something where by the time I arrive in Boston, I know that it's going to do well. I felt it was right for the moment in part because by that time, I had run what everybody considered to be a very surprising Senate campaign. I mean, I'd I'd, I'd gotten 53 percent of the vote in a seven-person field against some pretty formidable and better known candidates. And so so I knew that the themes worked.
6: I went with uh, the president rock. I don't know what to call them in these things. <laughs> it's always
0: uh, Obama and Marty Nesbitt hung out in Boston the day before his big
6: speech. I remember we were walking down the street and this crowd started to build up behind us. And uh, I looked back and it was like 10 people and I looked back and it was like 50 people. I looked back and it was like 75 people. And I, I said, dude, you're like a rock star. And uh, he laughed. He said, yeah, if you think it's bad today, wait till tomorrow. My speech is pretty good.
0: WBEZ covered the first day of the convention.
7: Illinois Public Radio's Sean Crawford is in Boston covering the activities of the Illinois delegation. And he's with us now by phone. So how is the Barack Obama show going over these days?
1: Well, a show is exactly uh, a good definition of it. He is really, uh, the the term I hear a lot is rock star surrounding him. And uh, he is getting a lot of attention, not just from the Illinois delegation, but nationally. He'll give the keynote address at the convention tomorrow night. That's quite a big honor, especially for somebody who's not even uh, been elected to a position higher than the, the state legislature.
0: Obama got to the convention and practiced his speech. He's in a room almost directly under the stage where he'd speak to a national TV audience that evening. He's rehearsing, and he's probably a little stressed.
5: There was one particular line in the speech that Obama was very, very proud of. It was a paragraph that that built, and it was about the divide between red states and blue states.
0: Obama really loved the line, but the Kerry team wanted it out. They claimed there was a very similar line in Kerry's acceptance speech.
14: They said, well, we want you to uh, walk down the hall to where Obama's practicing the speech for the first time and ask him to remove the line from the speech.
5: The young man who was sent to do the odious task was John Favreau, who we would hire after the election to be our principal speechwriter and whose collaborations with Obama became the stuff of history.
0: But in July of 2004... John Favreau was the most junior member of John Kerry's speechwriting team. So he was tasked with that awkward assignment.
14: So I had no idea what the hell I was going to do, but I got up from my desk, I walked down the hall, and I see Obama practicing with David Axelrod, who I didn't know at the time either. So Obama notices there's some kind of commotion. He's like, well, "What's going on?" and I introduce myself and I, you know, meekly tell him what the problem is.
5: And Obama was not happy.
14: And he walks over to me, and he's like within a few inches of my face, and he's looking down at me, and he's like, are you trying to tell me that I have to take out one of my favorite lines in the speech? And at that point, I think I lost consciousness, so I don't really remember (laughs) what happened next.
0: So what happened in the end? Did the line come out?
14: The line came out. The line was originally... There are no red states. There are no blue states. There are only the United States, all of us pledging allegiance to the red, white and blue. We rewrote it to say we are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the stars and stripes, all of us defending the United States of America.
0: Now, just for for clarification, was this a line that was already in the Kerry speech or was this a line that they just liked in the Obama speech?
14: Uh, This has been disputed for years. (laughs) All the Kerry folks claim that it uh, is a line that was already in John Kerry's speech.
5: They have their story about that. And Obama was very unhappy.
0: Obama was still fuming about the loss of the line. But David Axelrod reminded him that the opportunity to deliver the keynote address at the DNC, speaking to millions and millions of Americans throughout the country, was something most politicians would kill for. And it was all happening thanks to the Kerry campaign.
5: So maybe it's a fair exchange. And he calmed down. Before the speech, you know, I was a nervous wreck.
0: Why were you so nervous?
5: Well, because I knew it was a big deal. I knew this was a great opportunity for Obama. I was nervous for him. But he was not nervous. And he patted me on the shoulder and said, hey, don't worry about it. He says, I always make my marks.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
9: The next senator
4: from the state of Illinois, Barack Obama!
0: On July 27, 2004, just a few years after a disastrous congressional race, State Senator Barack Obama took the stage at the Democratic National Convention to give the keynote address. He was speaking to an audience of millions across the country. Thank you so much.
9: Thank you so much.
0: What do you remember sitting in that audience during that speech?
10: Initially, extraordinary fear. Why fear? Well, because I'm always afraid for him. Thank you. Obama's close friend and
0: advisor, Valerie Jarrett.
10: What if he gets up there and he like goes blank? I had a whole parade of horribles of things that could go wrong, and so for the first three minutes of the speech, I probably didn't breathe at all.
9: Tonight is a particular honor for me because let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely.
10: Obama
0: introduced himself to the nation with his practiced, but now polished, origin story.
9: My father was a foreign student, born and raised in a small village in Kenya. Through hard work and perseverance, my father got a scholarship to study in a magical place, America. While studying here, my father met my mother. She was born in a town on the other side of the world, in Kansas.
4: Obama's campaign manager, Jim Colley. I was up there watching it in the box. I had heard it like 85 times and I didn't quite, I don't think it affected me like it did the room, but I remember watching the people in the room and we took in a boatload of money that night.
9: I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible
0: speechwriter John Favreau.
14: It was the first time in a long time that I had heard a Democrat reclaim patriotism.
9: We gather to affirm the greatness of our nation.
14: He basically redefined patriotism as that motto e pluribus unum out of many one and the fact that his very unique story that wasn't outside of America that was the the quintessential American story and so when I heard him do that I thought This is someone to watch.
9: It is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. As the excitement was building
0: in the convention hall, this pretty much unknown state senator from Illinois was also making a big impression on people watching on TV.
6: I was watching Barack Obama. I remember the exact moment watching alone, feeling this man will be president of the United States.
0: Oprah Winfrey.
6: I felt, I just felt it. There was a knowingness inside myself. I could feel that he was the one. I could feel that.
9: E pluribus unum, out of many, one. And I started telling everybody,
6: just like, you know, favorite things or finding something I like to eat. I started telling everybody I knew.
9: The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states, and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats, but I've got news for them too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq and their patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America.
0: Political consultant Pete Greco.
1: It was overwhelming. I mean, there was a rhythm and a cadence to that speech where it just sort of builds and builds and builds and just brought you along to this mountaintop, and it just blew the
9: place up. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him, too.
5: You just knew this was a moment. Clearly, he had just been shot from a cannon.
0: Obama ended the speech by calling on Democrats to mobilize and elect John Kerry to the White House. But the buzz around the convention and the country wasn't about the Democratic presidential nominee it was all about the man who was still in the middle of campaigning for his first national office, Barack Obama.
9: And out of this long political darkness, a brighter day will come. Thank you very much, everybody. God bless you.
0: Obama's political godfather, Emil Jones.
13: I felt good. As a matter of fact, I felt so good, I got tears in my eyes. grown man like me crying. But our boy did good. He really knocked the ball out of the park.
0: Carol Ann Harwell, Obama's first campaign manager, watched the speech from home in Chicago. She knew right
10: away that something had changed. I cried. Don't ever tell anybody I said that. I'm on the radio, I know. But I cried. I felt so good. So I called him. And I was like, you're ready to be president of the United States Dan Hines.
7: I remember exiting out of the arena and going into the hallways, and people were running around, fighting and grabbing all the Barack Obama posters. And, like, they just fell in love on the spot. Everybody all at once just said, This guy's going to be president. I want to keep proof that I was here for this.
0: Chicago political consultant Del Marie Cobb was also on the convention floor.
2: It was unbelievable. Because all of a sudden you saw all these young white girls running around. It was like the second coming. Oh, oh. He wasn't just an ordinary black man anymore. White people saying he's as much white as he is black. And so I can support him. And I saw it. It was like somebody flipped a button. Cobb happened to look up into the balcony. And she saw then-Illinois
0: State Senator Reverend James Meeks and Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr.
2: And it looks like a train just hit them. I mean, they were just sort of in shock, sitting there in shock. They saw the writing on the wall, too, that the train had left the station, that they weren't on it. And this was the new leadership.
0: When you gave the DNC speech in 2004, it could have just been this powerful moment. Mm -hmm. Instead, it was... The beginning of a movement. What did you intend it to be?
8: Well, I, you know, I I don't think that I anticipated fully the reaction. I was confident it was a pretty good speech. <laughs> uh, during the course of the writing, we came up, you know, with some pretty good phrases. You know, when I wrote "there are no red states and blue states," I thought yeah, that works. And I remember not just the reaction in Boston, but. In some ways, what was more surprising was when we came back, we had organized this big downstate tour, and the first few stops, these small towns in Illinois, were you know, we're expecting 300 people, and suddenly you'd have a1,000 1,000 or 1500,, early on a Saturday morning. You know, at, at every stop, you'd start seeing three or four or five times as many people as we had planned. And, and it was at that point where you got a sense that uh, it had resonated in ways that maybe, uh,
4: yeah, even, even I wouldn't have been anticipating. I remember thinking, his life has changed and he doesn't even realize how it's changed. I mean, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants, for lack of a better term, to be famous. I don't know that he quite got what was coming at him.
10: It took a minute. It took a minute to get used to it. To go from anonymity to not being able to walk down the street without being recognized is kind of a shock to the system. You, you gradually get used to it. I'm not sure he's completely used to it now.
0: Obama was no longer a Chicago politician or a state legislator in Springfield. He was officially a national figure. The 2004 DNC speech instantly shot him into the political stratosphere.
8: And really what it was, more than anything, was a distillation of themes that I'd been thinking about and developing since I had first come to Chicago and started organizing. The notion that regardless of our differences, there's more that we have in common. The belief that when ordinary people uh, are empowered, when their voices are heard, that our democracy works. The idea that when politicians practice a politics that divides the electorate into us and them, uh, sometimes those kinds of cynical strategies can work, but they don't result in people's lives getting better. But that if you practice uh, coalition politics, that everybody can be better off.
0: When you look at the state of American politics right now, there are a lot of questions about where the next wave of leadership will emerge from. And looking at where this leader came from, you can start to understand that Obama's presidency was far from inevitable. When you really drill down, Barack Obama's early political years were messy. He wasn't following some master plan for how to become a national leader. Obama's emergence happened through some combination of skill, ambition, connecting with the right people, and luck. Hello, Chicago! But one thing did become clear in talking with the many people we interviewed for this story. Do you think there's something specific about Chicago that made this the city where the first Black president built his political
10: career. Mm. It's not easy to be an elected official, I believe, in the city of Chicago because there's a lot of nuances that you need to know. There's a lot of turns, shakes, and fakes. If you can get along in Chicago, you should be able to get along anywhere.
3: Chicago's been a dynamic center for change.
10: I think he stepped
11: into an area that he couldn't let go.
3: Yeah, he grew up, I think, in this town. Chicago, I think, was the great school, and he was a great learner.
11: We have decades and decades of black political history here.
3: That just makes us unique. Apparently, it's because it's a place where the first black mayor of a huge city
13: came from.
11: There is no other city that could have produced Barack Obama.
13: The people here are more political than people in most cities. He
14: probably couldn't have came out of another city. We fight
12: hard here.
13: Politics is a bluff sport in Chicago. And we love it.
12: This is where you learn the hard knocks of politics.
5: I often ask myself, why Chicago? And, you know, we have a a long history of racially charged politics. The fact that he was able to cope with those forces and build multiracial coalitions prepared him for the national race.
2: Chicago can be the launching pad for a black mayor, well, why not the launching pad for a black president? I mean, I don't know what it is. It's magic. I mean, the first black Democratic congressman came from Chicago. The first black woman U.S. senator. You just look at it all down the line. This is the only place it could have happened. As bad as things are, we continue to be the only place that that can happen.
8: whatever happy coincidences or serendipity or fate or whatever it was, Chicago provided me what I needed. It provided me a big, robust, confident, complicated, contentious African-American community that I could call my own, that that over time enveloped me and taught me who I was and what was important to me and obviously gave me my wife uh, and uh, my kids and everything that's most precious to me. So that's one thing that no place else could have given me. I think the fact, uh, I've said this before, that Chicago and Illinois are as good a sample set for the country. (laughs) They're they're microcosms of the country uh, because they are north, south, east, west, urban. you got, when you're talking about Illinois, rural, southern, you know, every race, uh, every faith. So that the politics that I believed in most deeply and ultimately propelled me to the presidency, you know, I had a laboratory in Chicago that I might not have had in some other place. Um, That doesn't mean that some other amazing talents with different backgrounds and uh, different personal stories couldn't come up, you know, in in other cities. It's it's just that it wouldn't look like mine.
9: Okay. We're
4: done. Are we
9: done?
0: I think we're done.
4: (laughs) Can you tell me to
0: hit it, please? Hit it! Ooh, ooh. Making Obama is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jen White. The producer is the man who manages to get all the interviews Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Brendan Banazak, who somehow manages to be in multiple places at the same time. It's kind of magical. We had editing help from across the pond from Kevin Dawson of Whistle Down Productions. Really special thanks to Joel Myers, Ben Calhoun, James Edwards, Joe DeSoe, the man with the best ears in the business, Candice Mattel, Khan, shout out, thanks to Justin Bull, Steve Edwards, Kate Cahan, Jesse Dukes, B. Aldridge, who was our intern and then came back to work with us some more because she just couldn't stay away from us. And our new intern, Stefania Gomez. Our digital editor is Trisha Bobita. And please give us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get these podcasts. It really helps a lot. And if you want even more Making Obama, go to wbez.org slash Obama.
4: Boom. And we're done. Hooray. Right. Okay. We go longer. You, you, you no, would. I know you wouldn't. But, but then,
8: then, then I'm... Uh...
0: <laughs> Your people might have a... Have words. <laughs> That's
9: <for us>. exactly. <laughs> All right. Good, one. Good one right back on
12: my Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.